Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm Dr. Quentin Allen from South Florida, specifically West Palm Beach and Stewart Jupiter area. And I'm happy to be joined tonight by my good friends and colleagues, Dr. Jennifer Lowe from the Miami area. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. And also Dr. Toby Tyson from the West Coast of Florida, Cape Coral area, both busy cataract and refractive surgeons. Tonight, we're going to address a a bit of a different topic in terms of the premium IOL segment. We're going to talk a little bit about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted our practices. So just to give a little background on on what we experienced here in my region of South Florida, being about two hours north of Miami, we were able to sit and watch as there were a significant outbreak of cases down south. But in our area, we shut down almost, it seemed like, for no reason, while other parts of Florida suffered in in different ways. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we all dealt with that and how we've all rebounded in the premium IOL segment. So Jen, why don't you get us started on how your experience was being in at ground zero, sort of, in, in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. Being here in, in Miami as, as ground zero, like Quentin put it, um, was definitely um, scary. You know, the first few months, we actually didn't see that much activity uh, in terms of COVID numbers. My office was shut down, essentially, except for the rare emergency, um, only seeing like one or two patients a day as needed. Uh, and then, and slowly we started to open back up, but that's actually also when the numbers in Miami started to rise again this summer, as as you all know. Um, so it, it's definitely been a bit of a roller coaster. We've been exhibiting, um, you know, t- tons of precautions for our patients. We have started surgery again, uh, and I would say that we're probably back to eighty percent volume. But part of that reason is because we've strictly adhered to the guidelines and. We're only allowing patients in with masks, and we've really spread out the the frequency of patients. So trying to trying to keep that in line, and uh, doing surgeries again on patients, luckily, but again with all the strict protocols that are being enforced. Jen, are you in a private ambulatory surgery center, or is it a hospital-based surgery center where you're sharing with multiple surgeons? Just trying to get an idea of where the volume is coming from, what the restrictions are, and is it based on the number of surgeons or what that setting is like for you? Yeah, so I operate out of an ambulatory surgery center. It is multi-specialty. However, ophthalmology is, is just on one floor alone. Uh, so it, we are on a hospital campus, but technically we are a separate building and considered an ASC. Um, so you know, that be it that as it may, we are, you know, seeing the volume come up, but again, the ASC is, is following pretty strict protocol and it did take us a while to, to open back up. So you're, you're having an issue not being allowed to book as many patients, or are you seeing big resistance to people coming in right now because of COVID in your area? Actually, we've been really lucky. The surgery center has been wonderful. I haven't had a restriction on the number of patients yet. Um, well, I mean, slowly we've been building back. So I guess in the beginning there was more of a restriction because they actually didn't have all the staff back. So we weren't able to run as many rooms at one time. So there was a natural restriction, so to speak. Now that's gotten better as more of the OR staff have returned. And, um, you know, and then I've had some patients, 
not want to do surgery because of COVID, but I've actually surprisingly have had a lot of patients still wanting to do surgery. So again, I'm probably back at that 80%, 85% number in volume. That's good. That's I mean, that's uh, honestly, that's, that's a good number considering where the news reports about Miami and the bigger cities. So now, Toby, you're you're on the west coast of Florida. It's a, a not as hard hit area. Tell us about what your experience was and how it's ramped back up after COVID. Well, we were seeing all the COVID hit the northern cities and stuff. So we knew things were coming. We weren't sure how bad it was going to be. So we had ordered a year's supply of all of our perishables for our ASC because we'd seen runs on other things in the past, even when there was, wasn't a COVID. So we decided that we'd make sure that we'd have enough supplies uh, for our ASC for not just being shut down for a period of time, but in case that when we did get turned back on, if there wasn't access to supplies, we'd have it. So we put those orders in early and were actually able to get them before we were shut down by the governor. But we were running as hard as we possibly could, trying to get the patients in as, as much as we could prior to the governor shutting down the ASCs. Because for us, every week that we could stay um, busy and having cash flow coming in, we knew that equated to one more week that we would have cash coming in to help keep our staff employed. Luckily, we were able to uh, keep everybody employed. We didn't have to lay anybody off. We had them doing all types of odd jobs. We were shut down for probably with the ASCs for about six weeks. And the moment that they uh, turned them back on, we were able to operate the next day. So what we found was in June, we actually had our best June ever um, in collections wise. And July uh, continued to be a very good month and so was August. So where normally in Florida, it's very seasonal on our coast we're seeing that a lot of the snowbirds are actually sticking around, that they're not wanting to go back north uh, to the big cities for multiple reasons. So it's keeping us uh, actually fairly busy right now. And probably at the end of August, we will have caught up and made up for the, the downtime. And we weren't expecting to get the PPP money or the Medicare grant. So that money really helped um, you know, give us a little bit of cushion going through all this. But otherwise, we've been very blessed that uh, we've been able to recover fairly quickly from this. So scary times, but it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised you had planned ahead. And, you know, your experience mirrors much of what we have experienced over here, too. And so I'll, I'll tell you, our volumes have picked back up. June and July were both extremely busy. August was extremely busy. So just from a a standpoint of, of year over year, we're, we're at about 100% of surgical volumes just because like you, Toby, we're in an area that is not in, in the bigger city. So our patients are still willing to come in and they, they want to, we had the backlog we were trying to address. So they want to go ahead and get their cataracts taken care of. So what are you two doing? Toby, I'm going to go back to you just because your environment's similar to mine. How have you changed how you talk about premium lenses? Are you incorporating any of what's going on with COVID or did you change the dynamic? You know, I know we have to do things differently. So tell me what your approach has been to that. Well, we own our uh, two surgery centers, so we've got control over it. So we're not under somebody else's arbitrary mandate. So that makes it a little bit easier for us to function and still provide excellent care. But really the discussion with the patients is more the patients driving it. They're coming in, they're wanting the cataract surgery they are, in my opinion, feel that they're not spending that money on travel or other uh, 
luxuries. And so why not take care of themselves? And so they're coming in uh, really requesting not only cataract surgery, but premium lens options. And with the type of lenses that we have available to us now, we've done very well because not only can we give the performance that the patients are looking for, but it's a very quick transition. So instead of having to have a discussion with the patients about the limitations or the liabilities of these lenses, now we're discussing the lifestyle that we can give. So it's been a higher conversion rate um, coming out of COVID and really uh, the demand has been greater. That's that's great. I mean, that's similar to what I've experienced. Jen, down, down in your area, how have you modified your discussion points or are you changing anything? Have have the newer lenses, the, the, the trifocal, having access to that or any of the EDOF uh, low ads, what are you finding is working now? What resonates and how have you changed anything? Well, luckily, like what you and Toby have experienced, I believe most of my patients have more disposable income now because they are not traveling. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I give the same discussion as always talk to the patient about the benefits of each lens and, you know, find out what would work for them. Mention the cost, which is the same as always. And I've been really pleasantly surprised. Um, more patients are going for it. And, you know, we can speculate as to why, but I, I think it must be a combination perhaps of more disposable income uh, for the reasons mentioned previously. And, and also, I think there is a concept of not wanting to wear the glasses because of the mask, the fogging, um, not wanting to wear contact lenses because they're concerned about touching their eyes. Certainly, I've had young patients interested in refractive surgery as well, laser refractive surgery, and they tell me that reason. So I think there has been more of an impetus. People are tired of wearing so many things on their face. Um, so that may be helping it go forward. I haven't had anyone specifically say that, but I think it's in the back of their mind. And maybe there's also more value being placed now on health and well-being versus travel and other experiences than has been in the past. And, you know, I would think going back to both of your earlier comments too, about how people are doing surgery centers and surgeons are, are doing well numbers wise in, in the summer, I think a lot of it may have to do too with us not going on vacation as well. Um, you know, usually there's so many Good point. And, and vacation times and, you know, my husband and I have realized we've just been here the whole summer working every day. So I think that's actually helped in some ways. For sure. I mean, I think we, since we're not spending our disposable income, we're going to work and our patients aren't spending their disposable income, they're willing to potentially upgrade to premium services. So I think we're all seeing the same thing, even though our geographies are a little different. One thing that I thought might impact the adoption rates of premium services was, was not having the extra family member in the room. Have you all, Toby, are you limiting having that third person in the room, the spouse of your patient? And were you concerned about that? Have you worked around that? Do you have the spouse join to talk to the surgical counselor or how did you approach that? Well, early on, we definitely only allowed the patient to be in the exam rooms and with the surgery counselor, but most of those patients were already kind of halfway through the system when this was starting out. Later, once we uh, got ramped back up and going uh, post shutdown, we actually were still keeping the family members out in the, the parking lot. And then when it came time for the surgery counseling, we'd actually bring them up into the surgery counselor's, counselor's office so they could discuss it because we still found that it was worthwhile to have uh, both of 
the partners being able to participate in the discussion. So it's kind of more of a hybrid model. Okay. And, and Jen, how, how has that impacted your patient flow or those discussions? Well, yes, I, I'm similar to, to Toby. We aren't really allowing family members or friends in the room unless a family or unless a patient really requests it. I mean, I think, I think it's reasonable if they're trying to make a decision about surgery and, and maybe they're, you know, older and can't remember everything. I mean, I, I do comply with some requests that I think are reasonable um, to allow like a spouse or, or caretaker into the room. Um, so I'm still, you know, still we're trying to socially distance. I'm lucky my exam rooms are pretty large, so that helps. But uh, I do try and be respectful of the fact that these are big decisions to make and understand on your on your own completely. Um, or I certainly offer to, to have a phone call with a family member um, at that at that time as well. Um, so I, you know, I don't know if it's affected it that much. I mean, I think that um, family members are still being really supportive about the lens options and and wanting the best for their 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 family members. So you you brought up about phone calls. Have you had more requests for virtual calls, appointments where you're going to get on uh, your iPad and do FaceTime and explain to the spouse why you're recommending this this new lens to to provide visual freedom. Well, I've had a fair, I mean, I've had a handful of for, or telehealth calls, um, not specifically focused on cataract surgery, but I'm actually really open to the idea. I think it's a great concept if after you've examined the patient physically, of course, and done all their testing, you know, I've been trying to offer to my patients, hey, if you have any questions, um, I'd be happy to jump on a call with you and, and answer anything um, with your family, member, family members. I think it's a great opportunity to do so and can really connect you with the patient and actually can and free up some office hour time. So these conversations can be lengthy and, and involved. And I think it's easier to do it sort of on my off time when I don't have a, you know, a bunch of patients waiting on me. So I, I, I'm definitely open to an idea. <laughs> that, and that's something that I thought we would be doing a lot. It hasn't worked out that way for, for us. We have kind of a two pass system where patient comes in, I meet with them and then I send them to a surgical counselor and, and they've been without their spouse, but we let them bring the surgical counselor, um, the spouse in when they meet with the surgical counselor. And then they come back again, though, for their measurements. Right. So that visit is when I think a lot of the education and, and really the patient is they've had time to digest everything. So that kind of two pass technique in, in my experience has been very helpful for patients feeling like they got enough time with with someone who is educated and trained and, and our coordinators who do the A-scans are very well educated and trained to answer all those questions. And of course, I'm, I'm available. So, but that has really limited the request for me to be available by phone or by uh, iPad for FaceTime or something to communicate with families. Initially during the pandemic, I had a few of those requests, but that has largely gone away. So Toby, do, do you do that same sort of two-pass technique or how do you do it? And have you found that people want more of your time? I'd say I'm different than both of y'all. Um, I'm guess mine would be called the one pass technique. We were always pretty efficient with this. So when the patients come in, um, they're getting worked up. They're getting their corneal topography. They're getting their IOL master. They're um, coming up to me dilated and I'm able to sit there and evaluate them. And before I walk in the room, I can already see what possible lens options are available to them. So I can sit down with them and evaluate them, explain to them at that point, what are the possible options for them and which one I would recommend. And then they go to the surgery counselor. And at that point, then they are educated on the price and what the co-pays and deductibles and all that is. 
So they're getting it all done in one visit, but it's not taking up a lot of my time. And since I'm able to have a directed conversation with them, I don't have to sit there and deal in um, you know, vagaries. I can actually sit there and nail it down and say, this is what's best for you and this is why. And so we have a very good conversion rate because we're dropping the patient off to the surgery counselor with a recommendation. And then that also allows my surgery counselor to have a better directed discussion because she's not wasting time talking about a bunch of different options that may not even be possible. So it also um, versus a two-step situation, because we looked at that with the two-pass, now you're having to have the patient checked in and checked out twice, which adds uh, cost and time to your staff. So you brought up a great point, I think, Toby, that if you don't give a directed recommendation, we, we do the same. You know, I think the only, it sounds like the only difference is we don't do the A-scan on the day of their initial consult, but we do have topography, macula OCT, so that at least we can make a, a strong recommendation about what technology would, would be the best for them. And 99% of the time, that's not going to change by their biometry measurements. But, you know, the, I think the second pass in the way I think about it just gives the patient, the family members time to kind of digest all the information. Then when they come back with our A-scan technician, they spend another, you know, 20 minutes, they do the A-scan, they answer questions, they review the topography. We get two topographies out of that process, which is, in my mind, better at detecting or treating the ocular surface disease, making sure that the topography we had initially actually reflects what we get after they've been treated for dry eyes and things like that. So it sounds like we're, we're kind of doing the same thing. Um, and, and you've had success with that. And, and Jen, how do you do a single visit and knock everything out? Or do you bring them back and talk to them a second time? What, how do you manage that? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually do a bit of a hybrid. Um, some patients come in and, you know, right off the bat, they, they know what they want and we try and do everything if, if reasonably possible. Um, and, and that's great. And then they finish up, talk to the surgery counselor and they're done. But if I do sense some hesitation in a patient, they're really thinking over their options, not sure what they want to do. That's actually when I'll suggest, Hey, we've done some of the tests. Like, like you said, I always do the topography at least first. So I know what I'm dealing with um, from a cornea standpoint, um, and obviously do the exam on the patient. But if I notice some indecision and, and they're not quite sure, that's when I'll actually jump in and say, you know what? It's a lot to digest. I want you to go home, talk to your family. Here's some information. Um, let's bring you back another day for your A scan or even a repeated A scan possibly. Um, and this gives me a time to, to tune up their ocular surface as well if needed and gives them a chance to think about things. And then I can bring them back, answer questions again. They can sign consents. And so I think I, I really do like a depending on the patient, I guess if you could say. Um, but, you know, some patients are know what they want. They're a slam dunk, whether they're going straight monofocal or if they're wanting to do premium, they just know what they want, and that's easy. And then I'll try and get everything done in one day, provided I'm happy with the testing. But I, I do bring patients back a lot for testing if I'm not happy with it. And again, if, if there's any indecision on their part, um, that's when I, I want them to come back, or at least I want to schedule a time to, to talk to them again, because I never want any, anyone to make a rush decision. And I always feel it's better to have more documentation as well. Excellent points. So one thing that I thought a lot about during the downtime, we all had a lot of downtime, and I know I thought about what were we going to do to help pre-educate our patients before they even got to us, because I just assumed that the visits would be very quick, very rushed. We're trying to get people in and out and, and not want to spend a lot of time in the office, and that hasn't all panned out, but we still thought about what to do. So we've been using Solution Reach 
And then in the office, we use the checked up wall boards. So we send out pre-information with solution reach. And, and I think that has helped our patients be more aware of their options. Have you changed your pre-education format based on, on trying to make this process as efficient as possible? In our side of the world over here, the patients really aren't giving you much lead time between them coming in for a consult and then having the uh, surgery. So a lot of the consultants used to say, oh, you know, you need to mail out brochures and have them all educated prior to them coming in for their cataract consult. And what we found is they were wanting to come in before the mail could even get to them. So I think the old-fashioned stamped methods just probably don't work in today's world. But I think a lot of these digital solutions make a lot of sense. The problem is finding ones that can be customized to how you want to do it. We haven't found one that really checks all the boxes for us yet, but there's a couple that look very promising that um, actually do multiple things where they're not just um, forwarding information to the patient, but it also acts as like a contact uh, coordinator. So you can actually track that patient and see, okay, did they come in for the consult? Okay. Did they do that? Did they actually book the surgery? Do I need to re um, engage this patient? So I think there's a lot that can be really built on. And I think you're going to see multiple competitors hitting the market. So I think there's one or two programs out there that are trying to do this and they're going to get more robust as time goes on. Yeah. I, I think John Hovanishian and is a part of MD backline. And I know there are a number of other companies we looked at, Sergio Rhythm, and we used to mail out brochures and mail out DVDs even back in the early days of this. So, Jen, have you adopted anything new as a part of trying to bolster your pre-education? So, yeah, we actually have not changed any of our pre-education tools. We, we only have a questionnaire that patients fill out in the automated uh, check-in that they perform prior to them coming to the visit. But, you know, like Toby, we, I haven't really been sending anything out by mail or doing any of that. We, we just educate patients when they're in the office with us. So one question that I, I thought about just as people are functioning without as much help, everybody has to be distanced from grandma and grandpa. They can't come over and, and, and interact with them as often and, and help as much. Do you think that our patients are aware of that and wanting more independence and visual freedom because they know that it may be a while before they have somebody around them as regularly as as they used to? Jen, has that come up in discussions with families that you talk to? Yes, definitely. It really has. Family members are now being separated from each other. Elderly patients don't have the same caretakers, maybe. Maybe they're grown children can't help them as much. And I think also wearing the masks um, fogs the glasses. And, and there's only so many things a person can, can remember to put on every day. Um, you know, so you have your, your glasses and then your hearing aid and now your mask. I mean, so I think for a lot of more elderly patients, giving up one of those items has, has been really helpful. So yeah, I think there is a, a greater tendency now to spend money on their health and well-being. And I think it's been a real, real positive effect. Toby, how about you? In your area, there's a ton of retirees. Are you hearing similar things? Well, mine are very active retirees. And so they really equate spectacle independence with freedom. And so they want that freedom from the glasses. They want the freedom from cheaters. They want them from freedom from having to use uh, contact lenses. And so 
it's always been a driving force behind our practice is that patient desire to have spectacle independence. What's different now is the products that we have available are really achieving that on a very consistent basis. And our patient base is very well educated. So they're coming in asking for lenses by name and making it much easier to have the discussion, especially in the past where I was having to kind of go through a, a menu of five or six different lens categories because no one lens could do everything. And now we're getting to the point where we have such full range of vision plus astigmatism correction all thrown in together. So we're really being able to you know, deal with, I'd say probably 90% of the patients out there are good candidates for the newer technologies. Yeah, those, those are all great points. And I think we have to be mindful of what our patients' life situations are presently, because Jen, to your point, a lot of people have lost some of their caregivers. They're just not as available. My, my mom lives in Tampa and we, we had a discussion. I haven't seen her since January because she wants to wait it out. And I, I could go drop off groceries at the window, I suppose. But you know, for now, she's in good health. And so then uh, my, my stepdad, who uh, is with my mom in Tampa, just had bilateral panoptics with Rob Weinstock. So, and, and that was part of his desire to have that visual freedom. So kind of interesting that this all just, just happened, but of course they didn't feel like they wanted to travel over here and they had a great doc over there who could take care of him. And he's been thrilled with his, his vision with, with panoptics. So I, I think we all have to be mindful of what our patients want and what their, their living situations are. And uh, those are great points. Well, thank you to uh, my, my good friends and colleagues who now, now I can't see who knows for how long, but to Toby and, and uh, Jen, uh, great chatting with you guys. Great insight as always, and really appreciate your perspective. And uh, you guys be safe and thanks for joining. Thank you to Drs. Allen, Lowe, and Tyson for sharing their experience with Presbyopia correcting IOLs through the pandemic. And thank you for tuning in. Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Be sure to tune in again next time.